three scenes that introduce, that are preparatory to Jesus moving out into public ministry. We looked at the first one last week, John the Baptist. His thing was to prepare the way for Jesus. And we, we looked at him last week. Today we're going to look at two different scenes uh, from Jesus' life where he's the center of attention. He's kind of the star of the show. That again, we're preparation from him for him actually moving out into ministry. We're going to look at uh, Jesus' baptism and his temptation. And then I'm going to mention briefly uh, when he begins to preach. And there's a pattern that I want you to see. There's uh, identity is confirmed. That's Jesus' baptism. His identity is tested. That's a temptation. And then he lives out of his identity. That's when he begins to move out into public ministry. So you have identity confirmed, then identity tested, and then identity lived out. And for us, the pattern that we can lay on top, that we could kind of, the template that we could put on top of our life, if you don't like that word identity, you can use the word truth. When God reveals some truth to you, if you've been long with the Lord, you've probably had an aha moment at some point, or you get something that maybe you, you've always known intellectually, maybe you something kind of sinks down into your heart again. It's kind of this, the light bulb goes on. That's truth that's been revealed to you or confirmed in your heart. And you can guarantee that it's going to be tested. The battle for us is almost always in our mind, and the enemy knows that. And so when we receive new truth, the first thing he's going to do is try to challenge that truth. Because if he can keep us from, from um, if he can keep it from really uh, taking root in our heart, then it won't affect the way we live. And so you're going to have truth over the course of time that's going to be revealed to you that then is going to be tested. And if you pass the test, and I use that in quotes, if you pass the test, then that truth, you'll begin to live it out and it will bear fruit in your life. So I would say just about anything in terms of revelation from God, that's the pattern. There's going to be truth that's revealed to you. You're going to have an aha moment, whether that's reading the Bible singing a song, having a conversation with somebody in prayer, a dream, God's going to reveal truth to you, then that truth, you can bank on it, is going to be tested, and it, normally that comes very quickly. Right on the heels of this truth being given, it's going to be tested. If you pass the test, then you'll incorporate that truth in your life, and it will begin to bear fruit. So you can keep that pattern in mind as we go through these stories. Starting in verse 13, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John, but John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? So remember last week we said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. So that was an outward sign that I was uh, recognizing in my own heart. I've missed it, I've sinned, and I'm going to turn away from that. So I'm being baptized as a sign, outwardly, of that inward transformation. And John says, you don't have anything to repent of. So there's no reason for you to be baptized by me. Jesus said, let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this. To fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus doesn't argue. Jesus doesn't say, well, actually, I have sinned and I do need this baptism. He says, you're right. I haven't, I haven't, I don't need this baptism for repentance. I'm doing it because it's part of God's plan. God is unfolding this plan right now. And one aspect of obedience to that is me being baptized by you. So although I don't need it in terms of repentance, I need it in terms of uh, what God is doing in my life as uh, I move out into public ministry. So John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a, a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. I want to focus on that last verse. We looked at this in detail a couple of months ago, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it. 
But I do want to hit three key elements here in this statement. Verse 17, this is my son whom I love with him. I'm well pleased. That's Jesus' identity being confirmed. Before he does anything in public ministry, the father reminds him, this is who you are. Three elements for us. One, this is my son. So that's primary. Uh, Before Jesus is anything else, he's a son of the father. He's a son of God. God does not say this is the Savior of the world whom I love. He does not say this is the Lamb of God whom I love. This is the Christ whom I love. This is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He doesn't say this is Mary and Joseph's son. He identifies Jesus primarily in relationship to him. That's the bedrock of Jesus' identity. And the same thing is true for us. Before I'm the pastor of this church, before I'm Misty's husband, before I'm Mary Davidson and Tom and Nate's dad, I'm a son of God. Before I'm anything else, I'm a son of God, and the same thing is true for you. Before you're anything else, you're a son or a daughter of God. Otherwise, you're building on sand. Those other things are fine. Those other roles that we play and those other relationships that we're engaged in, all of those things are good, and they're, they're fine, they're wonderful. They just can't be fundamental. They can't be primary. They can't be the foundation because they're not, they're, they're not strong enough. They're not, it's not rock. It's sand. And if you're not, before you're anything else, if you're not a son or a daughter of God, when the waves waves of life come and crash on you, and they will, you're not going to make it. It's going to cause you to question everything. When you get the, when cancer strikes your family, or when somebody walks out on you, or something with your children falls apart. If you're not son of God, daughter of God, before you're anything else, when those circumstances occur and they will they're still going to rock you but if you're a son of God first you've got a solid foundation to navigate through if you're not you're not going to make it nothing else is is strong enough to get us through those difficult times in life primarily son of God second thing you see whom I love God's posture towards Jesus he's he's for he's fundamentally for Jesus There's security that comes from that. And the same thing is true for us. His fundamental posture towards us is one of love. He's for us. Uh, That may seem basic to you, but for others, that's revelation. His fundamental posture towards you is yes, not no. And there's security in that. This is spoken before Jesus does anything. So this love that God has for his son is not because he's being obedient. It's not because he's doing wonderful things in ministry. It's not because he's changing the world and preaching sermons and healing people. It's just because the father chose to love the son. And the same thing is true for us. In Romans, it talks about us being adopted into God's family. He, wasn't just, he didn't just get stuck with us. He picked us out. He chose us. And so his love for us is based in his choosing. And the Bible says he doesn't change his mind. He doesn't waver. He's not fickle. And so there's some security for us in that, recognizing that he loves us before we do anything. With him, I'm well pleased. This moves beyond love to acceptance. Uh, God likes us. Some of us think, well, he has to love us. He's God. That's his job. But he just tolerates us. And this says, no, he delights in us. He's proud of us. He's well pleased with us. And again, this is before Jesus has done anything. He hasn't healed anyone. He hasn't preached anything. He doesn't have any followers. He's done nothing. And the Father says, I'm pleased with him. And the same thing is true for us. His pleasure 
for us. His acceptance of us is not based on our performance. It's rooted in his heart. And again, that's solid ground. And that's kind of the, the theme here when it comes to identities. You've got to base it on something. And there's nothing more firm than this. There's nothing more solid than God's declaration that we're his children and he loves us and he's pleased with us because that doesn't change. If it's based on my performance, well, what happens when I have a bad day? If it's based on my behavior, what happens when I screw up? Then all of this stuff changes. If it's rooted in God's heart, then even when I make a mistake or even when I deliberately sin, it doesn't change this from his perspective. It doesn't change that I'm his kid and he loves me and he's proud of me. If you're not living out of that, it's going to be difficult for you to follow God long because you're going to wind up uh, on this kind of treadmill of striving and performance and then disappointment, always wondering kind of where you fit, how's God fit. It's just it's a very crippling way to live life. If you can get this in your heart, if before you're anything else, you're this, it's very freeing. And so maybe that's a question for you is how far down your list is son of God? How many things are you before you're that? Or if you're a woman, how many things are you before you're a daughter of God? Not Sunday school answer, but legit. When you think of yourself, how many things do you tick off before you get to son or daughter? And if it's more than zero, then son or daughter is not high enough on your list. Some of us, we see ourselves different ways. We see ourselves as a servant. We say, this is, I'm a servant. And God would say, you're my servant whom I'm employed. And I'm happy with you when you do a good job. And so that's kind of how we see ourselves. And, and that can be from any number of reasons. All of us have a, it's a caricature. All of us have those of God. None of us see him clearly. And for some of us, we see him much more as a boss than as a father. And that he's constantly grading our performance. Some of us see him as a, dis, we're, we're his disciple. That's what Jesus says. We're, we're his followers. You're my disciple who I'm training for you. And I'm waiting for you to get everything right. And so depending on how well I'm doing, God is, Variously, he's either impatient with me or he's frustrated with me. He gets disappointed because I keep going over the same things over and over again. I don't get it quick enough. And so whereas my boss might be angry and want to fire me as my teacher, as my Lord, Jesus just gets, he just gets kind of gets frustrated. And when he's picking teams, he doesn't necessarily pick me first. I'm the one he gets stuck with because I don't get it quick enough. This is my disappointment who I am stuck with. I'm sure she's about to mess this thing up. For some of us, we see ourselves, we're walking on a tightrope with the Lord. And we feel like his will is, is as wide as a shoestring. And so we're, this is how we live life. And if we mess up even a little bit, we're falling. There is no net. God will pick us up because that's what he does. And he'll kind of put us back together. But he's just sitting there waiting on us to drop the ball, and honestly, we think he figures we're going to sooner or later. And he's just, for, he's, he's God, and so he got stuck with us because we said yes. He had to take us, but he's not, he doesn't take any delight in us, and we don't live with any sense of freedom. Again, there's this, there's this tightrope that we're walking every day. We live tense before him. And what he wants us to see is that we're his children whom he loves and that he's well-pleased with us. There's freedom that comes from that. And I think that's ultimately where we want to get. There's this freedom that comes from recognizing our identity in Christ. It doesn't mean there's not correction. There is. It doesn't mean there's not discipline. There is. But as those of you who are parents or those of you who had good parents, discipline is a part of, that's a part, that's part of the deal. 
That's part of training people up. And so it's not that there's not no discipline, there's no correction or even judgment, if you want to use that word. Uh, the Bible tends to use the word discipline instead when it, how God deals with us. It's not that those aren't a part, it's that those aren't the whole. It's just this small sliver. Again, those of you who are parents or those of you who had good parents, it's not all about discipline. That's that one piece of a much larger relationship. Yes, and there are times where there might be some frustration or some disappointment, and those kind of things, humanly speaking. That's not the dominant. There's security in knowing I'm, I'm in this family, and I can't really get out of this family. And they're, they're my they're, they're for me, and they're with me, and they're my people. And so I can be who I am with confidence and with freedom. And that's what we want to get as children of God. So that's identity being confirmed. And this is the most important thing for us. It's not just the most important thing today. It's a, if you're going to, again, go long with Jesus, you have to know this in your heart as well as you know your name. Not just in your head, but in your heart. You have to say, I know I'm a son of God. I'm a daughter of God before I'm anything else. And he loves me. And he doesn't just love me. He likes me. He's pleased with me. He delights in me. And if that's not, if that's not at the bottom of your heart, if that's not core to who you are, we need to, we need to address that because it's going to be difficult for you to move forward with the Lord. Second, we see these temptations. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Probably an understatement. The tempter came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus said, It's written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, that's Jerusalem, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, He will command his angels concerning you. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said, It's also written, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said, away from me, Satan, for it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. So Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he fasts for 40 days and then Satan somehow appears to him and tempts him three specific ways. Hebrews 4 says, We don't have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. doesn't mean Jesus faced every possible uh, specific sin that we face. He, he didn't. There was no internet for Jesus. So all the things that we wrestle with with that, he didn't wrestle with that. You know, for guys, there were no bikinis in this time he didn't have to worry about that so all of those many of the specific things that we deal with he didn't he dealt with all of the types of sin that we had to deal with there's no type of sin or no type of temptation excuse me that jesus didn't have to navigate through and we see three of the type i'll say these are three of the major types just about every many of the sins that you face many of the, or excuse me many of the temptations that you face you could classify under one of these three Headings. The first one, this turning stones into bread, that's a temptation to meet our own needs. So Jesus obviously is hungry after 40 days, and the devil says, hey, you're the son of God, you've got all this power, so why don't you just turn these rocks into bread? Feed yourself. So it's a, it's again, it's an attack on his identity. That's what's underlying all of these. His identity has been established or confirmed at his baptism, and now the enemy is going to try to shake that. 
He's going to see if he can get Jesus uh, to compromise what he's just heard from the Father. So the first thing is you've got all this power as a son, so why don't you take care of yourself? Meet your own needs. Live your life independent of God. He's given you this power as his son, so why don't you just take it and use it? It can be a bit like the younger son in that parable of the two sons in Luke 15. Just give me my inheritance, and I'm going to go live my life independent of you. You give me what's mine, and then I can, I can take care of it. I don't need you anymore. It's, it's, a, it's a severing of relationship at that point. It's just a transaction. I want to inherit from you, then I'm going to go do my own thing. And some of us, we, we wrestle with that t- same type of temptation, not to turn stones into bread, but to meet our needs independent of God. And the, the scripture that Jesus quotes back is from Deuteronomy 8. In the context there, Moses is talking to the Israelites about manna. And if you remember, the Israelites were in the desert for 40 years, and they, they were not able to produce their own food. They had to rely on God every day to produce this manna. And if I remember right, the Hebrew word, that it's a translation of what is it. That's what manna is. What is they didn't know what it was. They woke up in the morning, and there was this stuff on the ground, and they ate it. It was like a wafer that tasted like honey. And every day... For 40 years, that's what they did. They ate what was on the ground. They couldn't produce it, they couldn't grow it, and they couldn't save it. If you tried to say, hey, I'm going to plan ahead for tomorrow and I'm going to get a little, it rotted. You woke up the next day and it was maggots. And so every day you had this lived parable of having to rely on God to provide this stuff on the ground for you to eat. And that's where Jesus says, listen, we don't live on bread alone. We live on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He's tying back to the story that says, I'm not going to try to meet my needs independent of the Father. I'm his son, and so I'm going to live my life dependent upon him. And again, that's the temptation we face. Or am I going to live independent of him or dependent upon him? Easier said than done. So question to ask yourself, if you don't know, am I living independent of God, or am I living dependent upon him? Do you worry? If you worry, then most likely you're trying to meet your needs independent of God. That's a broad statement. But I would say, in general, if you worry, those things that you worry about are most likely needs that you're trying to meet independent of God. It's not fair to make this comparison, but I'm going to do it anyway. If you have children who are one, two, three, four years old, they don't worry at all. We're not one, two, three, four years old. But there's something about that recognition that before anything else, I'm a child of God. And so I don't have to worry. He's going to take care of me. That there's something there for us. So that's a question to ask yourself. Do you worry? Another thing is, are you insecure? Worry tends to be about uh, tangible needs. Insecurity tends to be around the intangible. Acceptance, security, approval, all those kind of things. Are you insecure? If you're insecure, then most likely you're trying to meet your needs independent of God. You don't recognize that before you're anything else, you're a child of his, and he loves you. And that's solid ground. I still, it doesn't mean, I, I, I want you to like me, but if you don't, it doesn't kill me. Because he does. The, that type of thing. And so if there's insecurity in your heart, most likely the areas where you're insecure It's because you're trying to meet needs independent of him. So, first two things. Temptation to meet our own needs. Do you worry? Are you insecure? Second temptation. Jump off of this temple. It's a temptation to manipulate God. It's testing him. Satan is basically saying, I 
double dog dare you to jump off the temple because, and see. Let's just let's make God prove it. Prove that God's actually going to do what he says he's going to do. If you go back and you read Psalm 91, that's what Satan is quoting here. And he quotes it accurately. He just pulls it out of context. The whole context for Psalm 91 is we're in a relationship. The psalmist and God are in a relationship. And so this promise of protection is when you're connected to me, you're going to be okay. When you're dwelling with me, I think it talks about living in the shadow of the Almighty, then you're going to be fine then all of these bad things are not going to harm you because I've got you. That's not what Satan is saying. He's saying jump off a building and force God's hand. Make him keep his promise. Some of us fall into this trap as well. We try to manipulate God through our behavior. For some of you, maybe this you can kind of play this through. When you really need something from the Lord, whether that's an answer, whether that's money, whether that's whatever that is that you feel like you need and you're desperate for God to give you something, do you wind up, do you cuss less, do you pray more, do you fast? Are you, are you trying to, it's like Chuck E. Cheese, I'm going to get all of these tickets and then I'm going to go to the counter and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cash them in. And that's sometimes what we do with our righteous behavior. We're, we're keeping score. We're, we're collecting tickets so that we can go to the counter when we need it and say, God, see, now you have to. And when he doesn't, we get our feelings hurt. Actually, we get angry. It's the older son and that parable of the lost sons it's the good boy those of you who are good boys and good girls this is the ditch you can fall into where because you're good you're used to kind of trading on that you're used to people responding to you based on your behavior because you are good and so it's easy to apply that to God as well and say well I'm gonna it's the same thing God look at my resume look at my track record look at what I've done I've done all the chore chart looks good for me so now pay me my allowance it's the elder son Father, I've been with you my whole life. I've always done what you've asked and what? You've never even given me a goat. You've never even thrown a small party for me. He's angry because he's done right and he hasn't gotten anything out of the relationship. And again, that's something that we're all, many of us, are tempted to. We're tempted to manipulate God based on our behavior. We're trying to turn the screws a little bit to get him to respond to us. Last, this idea, worship me. So Satan takes him up to a mountain and says, listen, you can have all of this stuff. It's yours. Just trade your allegiance from God to me. It's a temptation to take shortcuts. Psalm 2, 6 through 8. I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. This is what God said. You are my son. Today I become your father. Sounds like what Jesus hears at his baptism. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. So what Satan is saying to Jesus, this is what God has promised you. You've got all of this stuff. I'm gonna, I'll give it to you too, and I'll give it to you right now. Here's a shortcut that you can take. Don't worry about the means. Just You just you worship me, and I'll give you all of this. I don't know at this point. If Jesus knew he was going to have to die, I think he probably had some inclination of that. I don't know how well formulated that was in his mind. And so what you have here is here's an opportunity for you, Jesus, to take a shortcut. And Jesus says no, obviously. And for us, it's that same temptation. Jacob and Esau, you all remember them? These twins, Genesis 25, you can read it. I, When I read it, I feel sorry for Esau. I don't like Jacob, even though he's the one that God 
chose Jacob to me as a jerk. I think Esau is probably not the sharpest tool in the shed, and he gets taken advantage of by his brother. So Esau comes in one day, and he's hungry. He's been hunting all day. Jacob has been cooking soup or something. So Jacob, he's been cooking. Esau comes in. He's hungry. I'm famished. Can I have some soup? Jacob says, sure, I'll give you soup in exchange for your inheritance for your birthright so for those so imagine everything your mom and dad have written for you to receive in their will trading all of that for a bowl of soup and Esau says sure it doesn't do me any good to get all of this stuff in the future if I die right he hasn't eaten for like eight hours he's not going to die but for whatever reason he's so hung so he does this and he makes the trade and then later obviously he feels terrible about it and tries to get his birthright it just it doesn't work it's a trade that you, there are no take backs and we look at that and we think what an idiot how could anybody make that trade and we make that trade all day long we trade forever for the temporary forever for now all day long we can't see forever it's invisible it's intangible and it seems like it's forever away and now this is where we live. It's points of pain for us. It's needs for us. We can touch it and taste it and feel it. And we make that trade. We trade just broad speaking here. We'll trade our integrity for just about anything. We'll trade it for popularity. We'll trade it for power. We'll trade it for position. We'll trade it for money. We'll trade our integrity for just about anything. Because we think we can get it back. Most of us think we can get it. And I think that's probably what Esau thought. Sure, I'll trade you. Esau, he's a hunter. Jacob's a little more of a sissy boy. He's, and so he's probably thinking, yeah, we'll make this trade, and then we'll arm wrestle or whatever, and I'll get my inheritance back. And it doesn't work that way. It was an irrevocable decision. And sometimes we're the same way with our integrity. I'm going to trade it now. I'll get it back later. And you don't get it back. At some point, you just you can't recover from those little compromises that we make. And so the question for me around this, if you're a shortcut, if you're tempted to take a shortcut, if you don't know if you're in the process of that, if that's what you're being tempted to do, I would just say, where is there shame associated with some of the choices that you're making? I'm not talking about, is there shame? I'll just say that. Is there shame associated? Are you embarrassed about some of the choices that you're making? If you had to stand up here and say, I got where I got because... Would you be afraid to fill, would you not want to fill in the rest of the blank? Because it's embarrassing to you how you got where you got. If you're, a, if you're a parent, do you hope your kids don't ask you that question? Are you hopeful that they never say, well, how did this work out for you? Then most likely you've made short, you've taken shortcuts. Good things maybe that God has promised. And rather than saying with Jesus, we're going to, I'll get it when I get it through this path of faithful obedience to the Lord. We shiny package from Satan. We take the shortcuts for him. All three of those temptations strike at his identity as a son. Do you recognize you're a son living in, living dependent upon your father? Do you recognize your father loves you, and so you don't have to you don't have to test him. You can just trust him. He'll honor his word. You don't have to ask him to prove it. Do you recognize that he's pleased with you? That he will give you good gifts, and you don't have to do anything to earn them. You don't have to take shortcuts. You don't have to do any of that stuff. He's going to give you the good things because he's a good father who does that. It wraps up 
when Jesus heard that John, that's John the Baptist, had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. He left Nazareth, goes to Capernaum, which was uh, by the lake in the area of Zebulon and Naphtali, to fulfill a prophecy. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. We'll unpack this next week. What I want you to see this week is just the kind of full circle. Jesus passes the test, and then he's, he's kind of released in public. He's released to do the things that God has called him to do. The word tempted in four one can also be translated as tested. Satan tempts us to sin. God tests us to faithfulness, and God tests us to maturity. And so it's, it's two different perspectives on the exact same situation. For Satan, it was trying to get Jesus to trip up. I'm going to tempt him to sin, to compromise his identity. From the Father's perspective, it's a test. Let's see if this is truly in his heart. Is he going to live as my son, whom I love, one I'm pleased with? Is, is he going to move forward as that? And Jesus passed the test. And so then he's released to do the things that God has called him to do. And that same is true for us. Truth will be revealed to you. It will. And then it's going to be tested, and it won't. And recognize the, the temptations from the enemy. The Bible says he masquerades as an angel of light. He's good at what he does. That's not to scare you. That's just to say he's subtle and he knows what appeals to us. He's been doing this for thousands of years. And so uh, the temptations, they're not going to be these obvious, um, blatant uh, temptations to say no to Jesus or to reject him wholesale. They're gonna, it's subtle with him just luring us in it's testing our and if but if we pass if we can resist those temptations if we can stand firm in our identity in christ then god will release us into ministry for faithfulness or for fruitfulness excuse me all right i want to do this this is how we're going to close two things i have three things i want to share one that has nothing to do with anything else we've talked about uh and two that do so first identity we're going to have some ministry. If that's not, again, if, if the core of who you are can't say, I'm a son of God, I know he loves me, and he's pleased with me, then you need to let us pray for you about that. That's revelation that you need if you're going to move forward. It can be an overnight thing. Sometimes it's a process for people. It doesn't matter. It just needs to happen. I've been a Christian for 25 years. You may say, I should know this by now. It doesn't matter whether you should or you shouldn't. It just matters if you do or you don't. And so we need to get that. That needs to happen for you if you're going to, continue with the Lord, or you're going to constantly be, um, it's difficult, you're going to constantly be running after stuff that you don't need to run after. If there's a temptation that you're wrestling with, we'd love to pray for God to walk you through that. If you feel like you're being tested in some ways, then let us pray that you would have endurance, and maybe we can, together as we're praying, maybe God will shed some light on what exactly is going on. If you would say, I, I totally, I'm, I'm in the desert, if that's where you if that's how you feel this morning, then let us pray for you. And then this other thing I was thinking this week, Psalm 29 uh, is all about God's voice, and it sees very. Uh, it says God's voice is powerful and it's majestic, and then it talks about God's voice in thunder and lightning and making deserts run and breaking cedars and twisting oaks, and it's this picture of this voice of God is so powerful. And I was thinking about that and also thinking about... Um, the voice of God that's pictured in Elijah, in, in 1 Kings, when Elijah is trying to hear, and there's this powerful wind, and God's voice is not there, and this earthquake, and his voice is not there, and this fire, and his voice is not there, and there's this whisper, and God's voice is in the whisper. And in my mind, I'm thinking, how is it powerful and quiet? 
at the same time. And I began to think about this as a parent and wondering as a parent, in order for my voice to be powerful, how often do I just raise it? How often do I just yell? And that's how I try to prove that what I'm saying matters. And does God ever yell at me? I don't know that he does. It's not a guilt thing, but if you're a parent and you struggle with yelling at your kids, I think maybe the there's a way to have your voice be powerful without it being loud. God's is because it's it's significant, it's weighty. The, in Psalm 29:10 it says the people shout glory. That word glory can be translated heaviness. There's a weight to God's words, to God's words, and that's why they're powerful. No, he doesn't have to yell because he stands behind what he says. And so it doesn't have to be loud. And the same thing can be true for us as moms and dads. We don't have to yell at our kids. Our, our words can have weight because we stand behind them with love and mercy and grace and discipline and wisdom and all of the things that come with being a parent. And if, you're, if you've got that, if there's that significance to what you're saying, then maybe you don't have to jack up the volume and yell, that kind of makes you a bit of a bully, if that's the direction that we're going as parents. And again, that's not to make anyone feel guilty, but I, was just, I got struck by that this week and thought that might be something that some of you wrestle with. You may yell more than you desire to yell at your kids, and it's most likely just because you're frustrated. It's a snap. You haven't planned all day to go off on them. It's Everything's falling apart, and maybe something, and that's the snap response. But I think there's something for us in that that's not necessarily how God fathers us. And his words still absolutely carry weight and have significance. So any of those three things that you feel like fit, we'd love to pray with you about that. So I'm going to pray. Bo, you come on back. We'll close with one song of worship. And then Bo will dismiss us. God, I do pray for any here today who struggle with this whole idea of identity. I pray you would, you would drop an anchor in our hearts. God, that you would cut through lies that we've believed uh, about you and about us. And God, that you would confirm that we're your children and you love us and you're pleased with us. I pray for everybody in this room, young to old, but as well as they know their name, they would know that that statement is true of them. God, if there are any who are in the desert, God, we pray for you to comfort them. I think of you, that idea you sent your angels to minister to Jesus. And I pray for those who are in the desert this morning, that you would send your spirit to comfort them, to encourage them, to renew and refresh them. And God, I also want to pray for the parents in this room, that we would raise our children in a way that it's easy for them to say, yes, I get that God's a father, because I've got a great mom and a great dad, and it's easy for me to make that connection. We know we're not perfect, but God, we don't want to put any unnecessarily, uh, any unnecessary obstacles uh, in the way of our kids. And so for those of us who maybe, for whatever reason, we tend to fly off the handle a little bit. God, I pray that today you would deliver us from that. God, not that our words would be weak, that our words would be powerful and significant in the lives of our children, that when we speak, it would, it would make an imprint in their hearts, not because we're yelling, but because what's behind those words. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can stand. Come forward as you will.